typhoon Kanun is moving in and picking up strength. Its outer bands have already brought heavy localized rain to the north with strong winds reported in Geelong. Kanun is set to come closest to Taiwan between Wednesday and Friday. Once Kanun hits the Ryukyu Islands, it's expected to turn sharply and move north-northeast toward Japan and South Korea. Forecasters are still observing the storm for its potential to make landfall. Residents near coastlines should be on the alert for destructive surges generated by the storm. The DPP's Lai Jingde made headlines last month when he said that when Taiwan's president can enter the White House, the political goal that we're pursuing will have been achieved. The remarks were a hot topic at the U.S. State Department's latest press conference. When asked to respond to Lai, the department's spokesperson, Matthew Miller, emphasized that the U.S.'s one-China policy remained unchanged. He also addressed Lai's upcoming stopovers in the U.S., saying that such transits are, quote, nothing out of the ordinary. Vice President Lai Qingde was spotted in Zhanghua enjoying authentic local flavors. He gave up a smile when locals greeted him as Mr. President. <laughs> Lai promised to return as Taiwan's president. With sights set on continuing DPP rule, Lai will embark on a state visit next week. He will attend Paraguay's presidential inauguration and transit in the U.S. on his way over and back. And with respect to uh, his transit, such transits have happened uh, numerous times going back decades over multiple administrations and there's nothing out of the ordinary about them. The U.S. emphasized that Lai's transit stops were normal. But according to insiders, Lai's previous remarks about entering the White House had sparked concerns in Washington. The topic came up again at the State Department's latest press briefing. He said that, quote, when Taiwan's president can enter the White House, the political goal that we're pursuing will have been achieved. What is the State Department's comment on those remarks? I don't have any reaction to his remarks. I will say that from the United States perspective, our one-China policy has not changed. In mid-July, the Financial Times reported that Washington sought an explanation from Taiwan after Lai said entering the White House represented the achievement of his political goal. The report also quoted a senior U.S. official who said the White House had not been in touch with Lai himself, his campaign, or his staff. During Monday's press briefing, the State Department was asked if it feared Lai's election could damage U.S.-China relations. The State Department declined to respond. It said only that it would not address comments made by any political candidate of another country. I think both we and the U.S. are very clear on the fact that when Vice President Lai Qingde spoke about entering the White House, he was expressing a hope for more normal exchanges between two democratic nations. Any normal democratic nation understands the need to respect, to not interfere with the public discourse of other countries' democratic elections. Ahead of his trip overseas, Lai's White House remarks have ignited debate. As Taiwan's vice president and a presidential contender, his every move in the U.S. will be under scrutiny. The Taiwan People's Party recently caused quite a stir with its new campaign slogan, Vote White, Vote Right. After the slogan went up online, it was criticized for its white supremacist connotations. The party's presidential candidate, Ke Wenzhe, says the controversy stems from a cultural difference. Even so, the TPP has removed the line from its official website. TPP presidential candidate Ke Wenzhe made an appearance in Kaohsiung on Tuesday. The visit came 
after his English campaign slogan, Vote White, Vote Right, raised an outcry over its racist connotations. U.S. media outlet BNN Breaking picked up the story, noting that Ke is a controversial figure known for his contentious remarks. This is a cultural difference. In Taiwan, it's not problematic, but abroad it is. In the future, we'll get real foreigners to work on our websites. A Taipei counselor said Ke underestimates the cultural awareness of Taiwanese people. Just because the TPP themselves don't get it doesn't mean all of Taiwan doesn't get it. They are completely insulting the intelligence of Taiwanese people. Having a presidential candidate like him speaking on issues of global diplomacy would be a disaster for Taiwan. Ke urgently needs to find aides who are qualified in international affairs, diplomacy, defense, national security and matters like that. Truly qualified aides with both talent and morals, and not just a PR team that diverts attention away from blunders made throughout the day. Ke has a long record of gaps. In 2015, UK Transport Minister Susan Kramer presented Ke with a pocket watch. When a reporter asked about the gift, Ke said he might give it away or sell it to a scrap metal dealer for cash. In 2019, after returning from Israel, he landed in controversy with another remark. In Israel, they arranged for us to visit the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. The greatest publicity for Jewish people internationally has been that six million of them were murdered during Hitler's time. More recently, in June, Ke told Japanese media that Taiwanese fishers did not want to claim the Diaoyitai Islands for Taiwan, but only wanted to fish near them. Ke's campaign slogan is just another blunder on the list. Since the Hanguan War Games ended last week, there has been criticism that they did not prepare soldiers for the reality of war. According to one ex-officer, the tactics that used could backfire in combat and the fortifications built would not withstand an attack. In response, the defense ministry said the drills would continue to be improved to better reflect combat situations. Last Friday marked the end of the 39th Hanguan War Games, which featured high-profile anti-landing exercises. Critics say the drills were more show than substance. In a talk show interview, a former naval officer questioned whether the fortifications and tactics deployed during the drills would actually be useful in a PLA attack. He said that, although footage of the exercises looked impressive, the troops did not have concrete fortifications and a real enemy may not advance exactly as Taiwan imagines. The ex-officer said Taiwan soldiers only had wooden planks and sand to stop the enemy. He said it appeared that the drills were meant primarily for show. All military training exercises, including this year's Hanguang exercises, are meticulously planned out based on the threat posed by the PLA. We develop the possible scenarios, and based on those scenarios, we plan out the war exercises. Of course, we will continue improving our combat training exercises, making them more realistic and similar to real-life combat scenarios. I think this is something we will continue working on in our training. The military said that all drill scenarios were based on possible enemy threats. It said drills would continue to be improved to more closely match combat situations. In related news, the military responded to calls for relocating a Jilong ammunition depot, where an explosion injured nine soldiers last month. The two severely injured soldiers have undergone intensive surgical treatment. 
wound debridement will continue to be performed in the future, as well as skin grafting and reconstruction. The seven soldiers with minor injuries are due to be discharged today. They will still be called back for follow-up visits for further evaluation. The locations of our ammunition depots are chosen based on operational requirements, based on meticulous and comprehensive reviews. To minimize the impact of this depot on nearby residents, we have already made alterations so that non-hazardous supplies such as light weaponry ammunition are stored near residential areas. Moving forward, we will continue earnest discussions with the city government and local residents over this issue. Amid calls for the depot's relocation, the military said it had made adjustments and was coordinating with all stakeholders to achieve a resolution. Turkish belly dancing is known for its dynamic and flamboyant movements. Today, we take you to meet Kayawan, an award-winning Turkish belly dancer and teacher. She started a studio to train Turkish belly dancers and has traveled all around Taiwan to perform at art festivals and events. Our very own FTV reporter Stephanie Yang spoke to Ke to find out more. She takes the stage with an explosive and dynamic belly dance performance. Her movements are bold and strong with many body rolls, spins and floor work. Compared to other belly dance styles, Turkish dance movements are faster and lighter. This is a performance by Ke Yawin, an award-winning Turkish belly dancer. There are so many styles now. The most unique thing about our Turkish belly dancing is that it is flamboyant, uses power from the lower belly and combines movements of the body. The style of music is also more joyful. Because in Turkey, it is performed in front of an audience, so I will make a lot of eye contact with you. We also wear high heels, so controlling our body is quite difficult. Prior to being a belly dancer, Ko worked in the printing business. She fell in love with belly dance after taking lessons from a Turkish belly dance teacher named Crystal Lian. Ko decided to quit her job in the printing business and start teaching at her instructor's studio. She also traveled around the world to master the art. Before I became a dancer, I was an assistant at a printing factory. That was a very stable job. I had no foundation in dancing at all, and after seeing this dance, I really liked it and wanted to dance as well as my teacher. I thought I could do it, so I spent a lot of time learning from my teachers, studying abroad and studying videos of many dancers. Besides giving me confidence, I think Turkish belly dancing is also so beautiful. Because my teacher left Taiwan, I thought it would be a pity to lose this beautiful dance, so I hope to continue to pass it on. In 2019, Ke opened her own dance studio. One of her main goals is to nurture more Turkish belly dance teachers and talent. I hope Turkish belly dancing can continue to be passed on. Therefore, I have been cultivating teachers. Not necessarily teachers, but also people who like to perform very much. I started to let them teach. I'm doing this for the future. If a woman really has a dream, I hope to provide a stage where she can fulfill her dream. Having taught Turkish belly dance for 15 years now, Ko hopes to continue to foster more talent in Taiwan and give them a place to shine. She also wants to let more people know about the beauty of Turkish belly dance and culture. FTV reporter Stephanie Yang and Tan Junhao in Taipei. Today is August 1st, Indigenous Peoples Day. For the first time, the annual National Administration 
administrative conference for indigenous peoples was held in Kaohsiung instead of Taipei. Nearly 100 indigenous leaders and tribal elders gathered from across Taiwan to review policies and affairs related to indigenous peoples. President Tsai Ing-wen headed south to attend the event after testing negative for COVID-19 the day before. Seven years ago today, I formally apologized to all indigenous peoples on behalf of the government. I also attended the National Administrative Conference for Indigenous Peoples and solemnly declared that the government's apology to the indigenous people was not the end, but rather the beginning of Taiwan society's pursuit of historical justice. Each of the 16 recognized indigenous groups has members living in Kaohsiung, so today there is special significance in our holding the conference here. Since the government rectified the designation of mountain compatriots to indigenous peoples. Following a 10-year struggle, a constitutional amendment was ratified to achieve the rectification on August 1, 1994. The conference provided simultaneous interpretation in six indigenous languages and Mandarin Chinese. This year, the Legislative Yuan passed a dedicated health act to address the needs of indigenous peoples and improve access to medical resources. The Council of Agriculture has officially been upgraded to the status of a ministry. At Tuesday's inauguration ceremony, the very first Minister of Agri Agriculture, Chen Jizong, gave a 10-minute speech under the pouring rain. He said that through the resources of the new Ministry of Agriculture, he would pursue food security, sustainable agriculture, and improved livelihoods for agricultural workers. With the tug of a banner, the Ministry of Agriculture makes its debut. On May 20, 1988, farmers staged a protest with seven key demands. One of them was to upgrade the Council of Agriculture into a ministry. After more than 30 years, that dream has finally become reality. The first Minister of Agriculture is Chen Jizhong, formerly the head of the Council of Agriculture. Braving the rain, Chen gave an impassioned speech. This is a step that's been in the making for 35 years. The harder it rains, the stronger we become. Let us take our agriculture sector forward. Turning down an umbrella held by an aide, Chen spoke under the rain for almost 10 minutes. As the First Minister, I would like to thank the DPP administration led by President Tsai Ing-wen for giving a country boy like me the opportunity to take on this position. Chen received a seal from Premier Chen Jianren. Also witnessing this historic moment were Su Zhenchang and Lin Chen, former premiers of the Tsai administration. We take care of our farmers in every possible way, especially since 2016, when we established a four-pillar welfare system for farmers, consisting of three insurances and one pension fund. 
With the efforts from Minister Chen Ji-jung and the leadership of President Tsai Ing-wen, Taiwan's agriculture will find a way forward. Taking care of our farmers and fishers, ensuring food security, and striving for sustainability are our three main objectives. That's in addition to resolving problems that our farmers and fishers may face in raising farmers' income. Chen laid out a vision, pledging to look after farmers and fishers and enact systematic reforms. Through the new ministry, Chen aims to lead Taiwan's agricultural sector into a new era. Taiwan Tech, or the National Taiwan University of Science and Technology, has merged with Huaxia University of Technology. This marks Taiwan's first ever merger between a public and private university. On Tuesday, Education Minister Pan Wenzhong attended a press event announcing the completed deal. He said there were complicated laws and personnel issues surrounding public-private mergers. This first-of-its-kind case could serve as a model for future such partnerships, he said. During interpolation sessions at the Legislative Yuan, lawmakers often ask when there will be a public-private merger. And I respond that this issue is a subject of long study. It's difficult. It is very difficult to achieve. Thank you to both schools for giving me a great example to use in the Legislative Yuan in the future. During a recent gathering with friends, many of my friends asked me, how could you give a school away so freely? Huaxia University of Technology is hardly unwanted. There are quite a few schools that would be quick to take it. Truly, it is their selfless board of directors that created this possibility today. But throughout the process, I'll be honest, there were several times when I wanted to say, forget it. Huaxia currently has 2,817 students and it stopped taking new ones this year. The school is expected to close officially in 2026. The merger lets Taiwan Tech use Huaxia's campus for free and to take over Huaxia's assets after 2026. But Taiwan Tech must provide courses and credits to Huaxia's students. It must also provide six years of employment to Huaxia faculty who transfer over to Taiwan Tech. Now for a spotlight on one of Taiwan's most ambitious fashion brands. This children's clothing company began just seven years ago, and after four years in business, it was already making inroads in the global fashion market. It's currently stocked at several luxury department stores worldwide, including the Printemp stores in France. The brand's founder, Wei Junfang, spoke to us about her vision for a first-rate brand from Taiwan to make waves on the global scene. They discuss the design, draw up the pattern and cut it out. Then, on the sewing machine it goes and gets a good press. Customization is on offer. Embroider a pair of baby feet, a birth date or any other message. This sample workshop can produce 100 samples of new kids' clothing styles every season. It's the heart of the brand and Wei Chunfang's favorite place to be. What is it that I actually want to say with this brand? It's that you start aesthetic education from childhood. I want to express my hope that children can build their confidence with these clothes. Wei was previously a commercial stylist for 13 years. She wanted to break through the idea that children's clothes are just a vehicle for cartoon characters. In 2016, she mortgaged her house 
took on more than 60 million NT in debt and founded her company. She didn't realize that just as she started off on her aesthetic revolution, a pandemic was about to hit. When we first started, to be honest, we were losing money on every item. But this is the truth. If you have decided I want to make a first-rate children's clothing brand, I want to create an international brand from Taiwan, then you won't compromise. Of the six years the brand has been operating, three were during a pandemic. But Wei is undaunted and has pushed the company onward and upward. She's opened four concessions in foreign department stores, including Pantong, a premium French store, and the brand has featured in international fashion weeks. The brand has spared no expense to establish their reputation, importing organic Japanese cotton and adopting costly made-in-Taiwan functional fabrics. These clothes aren't cheap, but they've won the hearts of high-end customers, and last year the brand's revenue grew 81% year-on-year. It's about children's health, so we block all toxic materials at the source. So we use 100% organic cotton. Or, for example, we're using zinc oxide on our fabric too. I want everyone to have confidence that Taiwan has the capacity to go global, to make people see that Taiwan can do design and make it happen. Wei has a strong vision of the clothes she wants to make and the brand she wants to establish. Along the way, she might just contribute to a new global image of Taiwan.